Chapter 8a of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter 8a Lincoln as a Lawyer, His Appearance in Court, Reminiscences of a Law Student in Lincoln's Office, An Office Copy of Byron, Novel Way of Keeping Partnership Accounts, Charges for Legal Services, Trial of Bill Armstrong, Lincoln Before a Jury. The ten years following the close of Lincoln's Congressional service, in 1849, were given to the uninterrupted practice of the law, to which he devoted himself laboriously and successfully, though not with great pecuniary gains. His legal fees were regarded by his brethren at the bar as ridiculously small. His practice had extended to the Supreme Court of his State and to the United States District and Circuit Courts, and he was occasionally retained for cases in other states. With greater love of money and less sympathy for his fellows, he might have acquired a fortune in his profession. Lincoln never speculated. Apparently he had no great desire to acquire wealth. He had many opportunities in the days of the state's early growth to make good and safe investments, but he never took advantage of them. Many of his fellow lawyers were becoming wealthy but Lincoln still rode the circuit, wearing the familiar gray shawl about his shoulders, carrying a carpet-bag filled with papers and a change of underclothing, and a faded green cotton umbrella with A. Lincoln in large white muslin letters on the inside. The knob was gone from the handle of the umbrella, and a piece of twine kept it from falling open. A young lawyer who saw him for the first time thus, one who grew to love him and who afterwards gave his life for the Union, in relating the circumstance a long time afterward, exclaimed, He was the ungodliest figure I ever saw. An interesting and vivid description of Lincoln's personal appearance and manner in the trial of a case is furnished by one who was a witness of the scenes which he so admirably describes. The writer says, While living in Danville, Illinois, in 1854, I saw Abraham Lincoln for the first time. The occasion of his visit was as prosecutor of a slander suit brought by Dr. Fithian against a wealthy farmer whose wife died under the doctor's hands. The defense was represented by Edward A. Hannigan, of Indiana, ex-United States Senator and afterward Minister to Berlin, an able and eloquent man, and O. B. Ficklin, who after Douglas and Lincoln was considered the best lawyer in Illinois. Lincoln had all he could do to maintain himself against his two formidable adversaries, but he was equal to the occasion. The trial lasted three or four days, the examination of witnesses consuming most of the time. In this part of the work Lincoln displayed remarkable tact. He did not badger the witnesses or attempt to confuse them. His questions were plain and practical, and elicited answers that had a direct bearing upon the case. He did nothing for effect, and made no attempt to dazzle the jury or captivate the audience. When he arose to speak he was confronted by an audience that was too numerous for all to find seats in the courtroom. He was attired in a fine broadcloth suit, silk hat, and polished boots. His neck was encircled by an old-fashioned silk choker. He perspired freely, and used a red silk handkerchief to remove the perspiration. His clothes fitted him and he was as genteel-looking as any man in the audience. The slouchy appearance which he is said to have presented on other occasions was conspicuously absent here. As he stood before the vast audience, towering above every person around him, he was the centre of attraction. I can never forget how he looked, 
as he cast his eyes over the crowd before beginning his argument. His face was long and sallow, high cheekbones, large deep-set eyes of a grayish-brown color, shaded by heavy eyebrows, high but not broad forehead, large well-formed head, covered with an abundance of coarse black hair, worn rather long, through which he frequently passed his fingers, arms and legs of unusual length, head inclined slightly forward, which made him appear stoop-shouldered. His features betrayed neither excitement nor anxiety. They were calm and fixed. In short, his appearance was that of a man who felt the responsibility of his position and was determined to acquit himself to the best of his ability. I do not remember the points of his speech, but his manner was so peculiar, so different from that of other orators whom I have heard, that I can never forget it. He spoke for almost two hours, entirely without notes, and with an eloquence that I have never heard surpassed. He was all life, all motion. Every muscle and fibre of his body seemed brought into requisition. His voice was clear, distinct, and well modulated. Every word was clean-cut and exactly suited to its place. At times he would stoop over until his hands almost swept the floor. Then he would straighten himself up, fold his arms across his breast, and take a few steps forward or back. This movement completed, he would fling his arms above his head, or thrust them beneath his coat-tails, elevating or depressing his voice to suit the attitude assumed and the sentiment expressed. Arms and legs were continually in motion. It seemed impossible for him to stand still. In the midst of the most impassioned or pathetic portions of his speech, he would extend his long arms toward the judge or jury, and shake his bony fingers with an effect that is indescribable. He held his audience to the last and when he sat down there was a murmur of applause which the judge with difficulty prevented from swelling to a roar. The argument must have been as able as the manner of the speaker was attractive, for the verdict was in favour of his client. When he had retired to his hotel after the trial, and while conversing with a number of gentlemen who had called to pay their respects to him, Lincoln was informed that an old colored woman, who had known him years before in Kentucky, wished to see him. She was too feeble to come to him, and desired him to go to her. Ascertaining where she lived, Lincoln started at once, accompanied by a boy who acted as pilot. He found the woman in a wretched hovel in the outskirts of the town, sick and destitute. He remembered her very well, as she had belonged to the owner of the farm upon which Lincoln was born. He gave her money to supply her immediate wants, promised her that he would see she did not suffer for the necessaries of life, and when he returned to town hunted up a physician and engaged him to give the old woman all the medical attention that her case demanded. Mr. G. W. Harris, whose first meeting with Lincoln in a log schoolhouse has been previously described in these pages, subsequently became a clerk in Lincoln's law office at Springfield and furnishes some excellent reminiscences of that interesting period. A crack-brained attorney, who lived in Springfield, supported mainly by the other lawyers of the place, became indebted, in the sum of two dollars and fifty cents, to a wealthy citizen of the county, a recent comer. The creditor, failing after repeated efforts to collect the amount due him, came to Mr. Lincoln and asked him to bring suit. Lincoln explained the man's condition and circumstances, and advised his client to let the matter rest. But the creditor's temper was up, and he insisted on having suit brought. Again Lincoln urged him to let the matter drop, adding, "'You can make nothing out of him, and it will cost you a good deal more than the debt to bring suit.' 
the creditor was still determined to have his way and threatened to seek some other attorney who would be more willing to take charge of the matter than lincoln appeared to be lincoln then said well if you are determined that suit shall be brought i will bring it but my charge will be ten dollars the money was paid him and peremptory orders were given that the suit be brought that day after the client's departure lincoln went out of the office returning in about an hour with an amused look on his face i asked what pleased him and he replied i brought the suit against so-and-so and then hunted him up and told him what i had done handed him half of the ten dollars and we went over to the squire's office he confessed judgment and paid the bill lincoln added that he didn't see any other way to make things satisfactory for his client as well as the rest of the parties mr lincoln had a heart that was more a woman's than a man's filled to overflowing with sympathy for those in trouble and ever ready to relieve them by any means in his power he was ever thoughtful of others comforts even to the forgetting of himself in those early days his face wore a sad look when at rest a look that made you feel that you would like to take from him a part of his burden one who knew him then and had known his career since would be inclined to think that he already felt premonitions of the heavy burdens that his broad shoulders were to bear and the sorrows that his kind heart would have to endure mr lincoln was fond of playing chess and checkers and usually acted cautiously upon the defensive until the game had reached a stage where aggressive movements were clearly justified he was also somewhat fond of ten-pins and occasionally indulged in a game whatever may have been his tastes in his younger days at this period of his life he took no interest in fishing-rod or gun he was indifferent to dress careless almost to a fault of his personal appearance the same indifference extended to money so long as his wants were supplied and they were few and simple he seemed to have no further use for money except in the giving or the lending of it with no expectation or desire for its return to those whom he thought needed it more than he debt he abhorred and under no circumstances would he incur it he was abstemious in every respect i have heard him say that he did not know the taste of liquor at the table he preferred plain food and a very little satisfied him under no circumstances would he as an attorney take a case he knew to be wrong every possible means was used to get at the truth before he would undertake a case more cases by his advice were settled without trial than he carried into the courts and that too without charge when on one occasion i suggested that he ought to make a charge in such cases he laughingly answered they wouldn't want to pay me they don't think i have earned a fee unless i take the case into court and make a speech or two when trivial cases were brought to him such as would most probably be carried no farther than a magistrate's office and he could not induce a settlement without trial he would generally refer them to some young attorney for whom he would speak a good word at the same time he was ever kind and courteous to these young beginners when he was the opposing counsel he had a happy knack of setting them at their ease and encouraging them in consequence he was the favorite of all who came in contact with him when his heart was in a case he was a powerful advocate i have heard more than one attorney say that it was little use to expect a favorable verdict in any case where lincoln was opposing counsel as his simple statements of the facts had more weight with the jury than those of the witnesses as a student if such a term could be applied to mr lincoln one who did not know him might have called him indolent he would pick up a book and run rapidly over the pages pausing here and there 
At the end of an hour, never as I remember more than two or three hours, he would close the book, stretch himself out on the office lounge, and with hands under his head and eyes shut, he would digest the mental food he had just taken. In the spring of 1846, war between the United States and Mexico broke out. Mr. Lincoln was opposed to the war. He looked upon it as unnecessary and unjust. Volunteers were called for. John J. Hardin, who lost his life in that war, and Edward D. Baker, who was killed at Ball's Bluff during our Civil War, both Whigs, were engaged in raising regiments. Meetings were held and speeches made. At one of them, after Baker and others had spoken, Lincoln, who was in the audience, was called for, and the call was repeated until at last he ascended the platform. He thanked the audience for the compliment paid him in the wish they had expressed to hear him talk, and said he would gladly make them a speech if he had anything to say. But he was not going into the war, and as he was not going himself, he did not feel like telling others to go. He would simply leave it to each individual to do as he thought his duty called for. After a few more remarks, and a story with a nib to it, he bowed himself off the platform. About a year after this Mr. Lincoln was seeking to be nominated as a candidate for Congress, finding the writing of letters, at his dictation, to influential men in the different counties and even precincts of the district somewhat burdensome, I suggested printing circulars. He objected, on the ground that a printed letter would not have the same effect that a written one would. The latter had the appearance of personality. It was more flattering to the receiver, and would more certainly gain his assistance, or at least his good will. In discussing the probabilities of his nomination, I remarked that there was so much unfairness, if not downright trickery, used, that it appeared to me almost useless to seek a nomination without resort to similar means. His reply was, I want to be nominated. I would like to go to Congress. But if I cannot do so by fair means, I prefer to stay at home." He was nominated, and in the following fall was elected by a majority over three times as large as the district had ever before given. Mr. Lincoln, like many others in their callow days, scribbled verses, and so far as I was capable of judging, their quality was above the average. It was accidentally that I learned this. In arranging the books and papers in the office, I found two or three quires of letter-paper stitched together in book form, nearly filled with poetical effusions in Mr. Lincoln's handwriting, and evidently original. I looked through them somewhat hurriedly, and when Lincoln came in I showed him the manuscript, asking him if it was his. His response was, "'Where did you find it?' And rolling it up, he put it in his coat-tail pocket and I saw it no more. Afterwards, in speaking of the matter to Mr. Lincoln's partner, he said, I believe he has at times scribbled some verses, but he is, I think, somewhat unwilling to have it known. Lincoln's love of poetry is further shown by the following incident, related by a gentleman who visited the old law office of Lincoln and Herndon at Springfield. He says, I took up carelessly, as I stood thinking, a handsome octavo volume lying on the office table, it opened so persistently at one place as I handled it, that I looked to see what it was, and found that somebody had thoroughly thumbed the pages of Don Juan. I knew Mr. Herndon was not a man to dwell on it, and it darted through my mind that perhaps it had been a favorite with Lincoln. "'Did Mr. Lincoln ever read this book?' I said hurriedly. "'That book,' said Herndon, looking up from his writing and taking it out of my hand. "'Oh, yes. He read it often. It is the office copy.' 
Lincoln was so fond of the book that he kept it ready to his hand. Mr. John T. Stewart, Lincoln's first law partner, says of him that his accounts were correctly kept, but in a manner peculiar to himself. Soon after their law partnership was formed, Mr. Stewart was elected to Congress, thereafter spending much of his time in Washington. Lincoln conducted the business of the firm in his absence. When Mr. Stewart reached home, at the close of the first session of Congress, Lincoln proceeded to give him an account of the earnings of the office during his absence. The charges for fees and entry of receipts of money were not in an account book, but stowed away in a drawer in Lincoln's desk, among the papers in each case. He proceeded to lay the papers before Mr. Stewart, taking up each case by itself. The account would run in this way. Fees charged in this case. Amount. Amount collected. Amount. Stewart's half. Amount. The half that belonged to Mr. Stewart would invariably accompany the papers in the case. Lincoln had the reputation of being very moderate in his charges. He was never grasping, and seemed incapable of believing that his services could be worth much to any one. One of the most famous cases in which Lincoln engaged was that of William D. Armstrong, son of Jack and Hannah Armstrong of New Salem, the child whom Lincoln had rocked in the cradle while Mrs. Armstrong attended to other household duties. Jack Armstrong, it will be remembered, was an early friend of Lincoln's, whom he had beaten in a wrestling match on his first arrival in New Salem. He and his wife had from that time treated the youth with the utmost kindness, giving him a home when he was out of work, and showing him every kindness it was in their power to offer. Lincoln never forgot his debt of gratitude to them. And when Hannah, now a widow, wrote to him of the peril her boy was in, and besought him to help them in their extremity, he replied promptly that he would do what he could. The circumstances were these. In the summer of 1857, at a camp-meeting in Mason County, one Metzgar was most brutally murdered. The affray took place about half a mile from the place of worship, near some wagons loaded with liquor and provisions. Two men, James H. Norris and William D. Armstrong, were indicted for the crime. Norris was tried in Mason County, convicted of manslaughter, and sentenced to the penitentiary for a term of eight years. The popular feeling being very high against Armstrong in Mason County, he took a change of venue to Cass County, and was there tried at Beardstown in the spring of 1858. Hitherto Armstrong had the services of two able counsellors, but now their efforts were supplemented by those of a most determined and zealous volunteer. The case was so clear against the accused that defence seemed almost useless. The strongest evidence was that of a man who swore that at eleven o'clock at night he saw Armstrong strike the deceased on the head, that the moon was shining brightly, and was nearly full, and that its position, in the sky, was just about that of the sun at ten o'clock in the morning, and by it he saw Armstrong give the mortal blow. This was fatal, unless the effect could be broken by contradiction or impeachment. Lincoln quietly looked up an almanac, and found that at the time this witness declared the moon to have been shining with full light, there was no moon at all. Lincoln made the closing argument. At first, says Mr. Walker, one of the counsel associated with him, he spoke very slowly and carefully, reviewing the testimony and pointing out its contradictions, discrepancies, and impossibilities. When he had thus prepared the way, he called for an almanac, and showed that at the hour at which the principal witness swore he had seen by the light of the full moon the mortal blow given, there was no moon. 
The last fifteen minutes of his speech were as eloquent as I have ever heard. And such were the power and earnestness with which he spoke to that jury, that all sat as if entranced, and, when he was through, found relief in a gush of tears. Said one of the prosecutors, he took the jury by storm. There were tears in Mr. Lincoln's eyes while he spoke, but they were genuine. His sympathies were fully enlisted in favor of the young man, and his terrible sincerity could not help but arouse the same passion in the jury. I have said a hundred times that it was Lincoln's speech that saved that man from the gallows. Armstrong was not cleared by any want of testimony against him, but by the irresistible appeal of Mr. Lincoln in his favor, says Mr. Shaw, one of the associates in the prosecution. His mother, who sat near during Lincoln's appeal, says, he told the stories about our first acquaintance, and what I did for him, and how I did it. Lincoln said to me, Hannah, your son will be cleared before sundown. He and the other lawyers addressed the jury, and closed the case. I went down to Thompson's pasture. Stater came to me and told me that my son was cleared, and a free man. I went up to the courthouse. The jury shook hands with me. So did the court. So did Lincoln. We were all affected, and tears were in Lincoln's eyes. He then remarked to me, "'Hannah, what did I tell you? I pray to God that William may be a good boy hereafter, that this lesson may prove, in the end, a good lesson to him and to all.' After the trial was over, Lincoln came down to where I was in Beardstown. I asked him what he charged me, told him I was poor. He said, "'Why, Hannah, I shan't charge you a cent, never. Anything I can do for you I will do willingly and without charges.' He wrote to me about some land which some men were trying to get from me, and said, "'Hannah, they can't get your land. Let them try it in the circuit court, and then you appeal it. Bring it to the Supreme Court, and Herndon and I will attend to it for nothing.'" End of chapter 8a Recording by Bill Borst